0: Welcome back to Psychic Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mann, and I'm so happy you can join me again. As always, I want to thank you for listening and showing your support. Those of you who reached out to me on Instagram and Twitter, thank you so much. I absolutely love interacting with you guys. Um, Once again, just to uh, point out, the Patreon is back up. If any of you want to request a specific crime, the tiers are $5, you get early access to episodes to future episodes that will not be on regular streaming platforms yet you also get access to crime facts to uh, pictures things that may not have been on the podcast I'm going to try and go in there and do a daily crime fact every day Um, we are going back and we're going to do the lives we're going to do video lives Um, I have a nice little new background all set up for you guys, so you can see my smiley happy face. So we want to do those dumb crime lives at least once a month. So um in the $25 tier, you can then request a specific crime and you also get a psychic crime t-shirt as well as the other features mentioned before. Um so if you absolutely i want to hear from you if you want to tell me about local crimes that may not have gone national or international if you are not in the u.s that you want me to cover please let me know the stupider the better i want to uh, use your feedback for when we do the live which i call dumber than a sack of hair because we cover just very dumb lower demand kind of crimes um the so just reach out visit the patreon i appreciate it so 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 much um i it appreciate all your support and like I said I'm always shocked at the fact that there are people around the world not just in the US that listen to me. I continue to be um, absolutely uh, humbled by the fact that I, I do continually have people from New Zealand uh, that reach out to me and I appreciate that. I just never thought that I would reach uh, people all over the world so I guess the love of true crime is pretty universal from wherever you are. So this week we're doing Part two of the Serial Killer Who Never Was series. Last week, we covered Sturge Burwell, AKA Thomas Quick, he was a Swedish uh, patient in an inpatient facility, Scythor Hospital, who confessed to as many as 30 crimes, was convicted of eight, and as it became clear that he was high on benzos almost every single time and had been released and to have day passes and research the crimes, he confessed to that it and in some cases he actually had alibis that this was he actually didn't commit anything and had made it up and all of his eight convictions were quashed so we're looking at Henry Lee Lucas this is a case that happened in Texas in the United States and we're going to see the drastically different ways in which the Sweden versus the United States handled these situations that are very very similar in the mid-1980s Henry Lee Lucas was a star, at least in the context of America's exploding fascination with serial killers. It was something that had been newly discovered, and the subject of anxious news features and feature films, Lucas ended up confessing to murdering hundreds of people. At first it was 100, then it was 200, and then it was somewhere around 600. Okay, that's insanity. The most the the worst serial killers that we know of like i think the grim sleeper they believe is one of the worst with one of the highest body counts and like his estimated body count maybe hits around close to a hundred um and he was unchecked for like 20 years so this is like 600 is just not a feasible number an odd job drifter with Three teeth and a lazy eye. Like, I love the explanation. They need to make him sound like as redneck as possible because this is happening in Texas. I really don't think that description was necessary. Lucas would recall often on camera precise and grisly details about his victims. Police officers from across the country interviewed him for more than 3,000 murder cases. Can you imagine that? just having someone in your jail and cops across the country are trying to pin all their unsolved murders on him and like they interview him 3000 it has to be more than 3000 times they probably interviewed him multiple times for each murder but to get him to confess to 3000 try and get him to confess to 3000 murders that's insane at least 200 cases were attributed to him closing them to further investigation and making him the most prolific serial killer at the time. That's ridiculous. Except it was all a lie. One spun through a toxic brew of people-pleasing power and convenience on part of law enforcement. The Lucas story spiraled from a by-the-book murder case, the killings of his housemate, Kate Rich, and girlfriend Becky Powell in Texas, to a media frenzy in which Lucas, his handlers, the Texas Rangers, a statewide investigation unit with most Texas uniforms. So what people don't know, Texas Rangers are kind of like, like we have a state patrol, so every single state has a state patrol. The Texas Rangers are like that, except they don't just, aren't just responsible for the highways. Their response, they look into murder investigations, they look into crimes. It's kind of like a bureau of investigation for the state of Texas. And they have, had in recent years, not always, but in recent years, they've had a reputation for inserting themselves in local investigations and either not contributing or making misleading statements. And when I talked about the the kid who was falsely convicted of molesting someone that stayed in the same house with him, that is an instance of Texas Ranger getting on the stand to um testify and all that he testified to was that the kid pretended to be a army veteran like that has nothing to do with the fact that he's being you know being charged with child molestation pretending to be an army vet has nothing to do with that so they they do in recent years have a history of getting involved or inserting themselves in cases that they just have no business being there now enabled They enabled these confessions, which shut down other police departments' attempts to have complete investigations. So they ended up having botched or incomplete investigations into the crimes. Forty years later, it's difficult to know the exact number of cases that were falsely attributed to him. He was a far, far, far bigger pathological liar than he was a serial killer but there are certainly dozens of cases where either killers are walking free because they're still credited to Lucas or even more than that that just were never properly investigated because it was credited to him. A respected Rangers department led by Sheriff Jim Botwell drew widespread acclaim for catching a prolific serial killer. A tragic pattern of unsolved murders, almost all of whom were women, left underinvestigated or ignored. A symbiotic relationship between the Rangers various investigators and Lucas that ran on easily obtained low evidence confessions and this once again suggests that the Rangers fed him information on several of the cases that he confessed to. He was very amenable to the desires of whoever's talked to meaning he was it was easy to to uh, coerce him it was when you're very I mean you're malleable it means it's very easy to shape you into what you want um, them to be. So people who are severe people pleasers and they desperately seek that adoration, they desperately seek that acceptance by pleasing people and making them happy, they would be someone who's very easy to mold into what you want, very easy to get them to say the things you want them to say. Now, a lot of these confessions were accompanied by milkshakes and goodwill. Case closed. Not so much. Some of that corrective work has began to be done thanks to advances in DNA technology since Lucas started confessing in the late 70s that even circumstantial evidence suggests would be almost impossible. Just this year, several cases have been reopened or actually resolved. Now, he was born on August 23, 1936 in Blacksburg, Virginia. He had a very troubled upbringing. His parents were both alcoholics and they used to abuse him both mentally and physically. Henry's mother, Viola, prostituted herself to earn money. She used to make Lucas watch her have sex with her clients. At the age of 10 in 1946, Henry had a fight with his brother, which resulted in him losing his left eye. He used to scare other children by making scary faces using his physical appearance to his advantage. As he moved into his teenage years, his sexual deviance began to grow. It is said that Henry used to have sex with his half-brother and bodies of dead animals. Henry ran away from his house after dropping out of school in the sixth grade. Now, mind you, it's said, meaning it's alleged that he did any of those things. In 1954, at the age of 18, Henry was arrested in Richmond, Virginia, and was convicted for committing 12 counts of burglary. He was sentenced to four years in prison. In 1957, Henry managed to escape prison, but was recaptured just three days later. After that, he completed his sentence and was released in September of 1959. He then moved to Michigan to live with his mother and half-sister. Henry wasn't on very good terms with his mother for obvious reasons. His mother wanted Henry to come live with her and look after her as she was getting older. In January 1960, they were having an argument over this. His mother hit him on the head with a broom. This made him furious. Make me furious too if I got hit in the head by my mother with a broom as a grown-ass woman. Not saying that justifies anything. He picked up a knife and stabbed his mother in the neck. Okay, not that furious. I wouldn't stab my mother. I'd just be like, damn, mom, why are you hitting me with a broom? And he then fled the scene. Henry was arrested in Ohio and charged with second-degree murder. He claimed that he killed his mother because he was defending himself. This self-defense claim was rejected by a court and he was sentenced to 20 to 40 years in prison. Yeah, yeah, there really isn't self-defense when you stab an ugly person in the neck. However, in 1970, just after 10 years of his sentence, he was released due to prison overcrowding. Good to know that prison overcrowding has been an issue that we can't deal with in the United States for 50 years. In 1971, just after one year of being released from prison, Henry was again arrested for attempting to kidnap three schoolgirls. Wow. Okay. He was then sentenced to five years. Five years for attempting to kidnap three schoolgirls. Overcrowding, maybe, for the lenient sentence? While serving this sentence, Lucas began to grow affection for a family friend and single mother who used to write letters to him in prison. Ooh, son run. After his release in 1975, they got married. In 1977, two years after the marriage, his stepdaughter accused him of abusing her sexually. Following this accusation, Henry left the marriage and moved to Jacksonville, Florida. Henry met Otis Toole, a drifter and serial killer in Jacksonville, and became good friends with him. He moved into his house where he lived with his parents. He later met Toole's niece, Frida Becky Powell. Becky was put in a state shelter since her family died in 82. Henry had a thing for Becky, so he asked her to run away with him. Becky agreed, and they went to California together. There, they got a job looking after an 82-year-old woman named Kate Rich. After some time, Lucas and Becky were fired, accused of stealing. They continued hitchhiking, but at this point, Pal became exhausted and frustrated. She was homesick and wanted to leave. Henry said Becky left him at a truck stop when they were in Bowie, Texas. It was June 1983 that Phil Ryan, a Texas Ranger, arrested Henry for unlawful possession of a firearm. While he was being interrogated, Henry confessed to killing Frida, Becky Powell and Kate Ritt, the 82-year-old woman he had worked for. He took police to the remains of Rich and Becky. The police were surprised and this increased Henry's credibility because he was cooperating with them. This was just the beginning of Henry's confession spree. In November, 1983, Henry confessed to countless unsolved killings in interviews with law enforcement agencies. Based on his confessions, a special Lucas task force was formed by James B. Adams, the director of the Texas Department of Public Safety. The task force gave Henry very, very special treatment, which was never given to any convict before. He was allowed to roam freely in the police station, and he was taken to restaurants. He was brought his favorite milkshakes every day. Henry loved the attention, so he kept giving the task force what they wanted. The task force cleared, in quotation marks, 213 unsolved murders based on Henry's confessions. Clearing 213 murders sounded too good to be true. Henry's involvement in these crimes was complicated. It turned out that Henry was given access to the files he was confessing to, which enabled Henry to come up with convincing and detailed confessions. Like, who's like, did you commit this murder? What murder? And they're like, this one, and they hand him the file. Is that how that happened? Because I can't imagine a reason to give someone you're interrogating the whole file with all the facts on what they're supposedly confessing to. The confession tapes showed that Henry would read facial reactions of the task force, then alter what he was saying. This is something little kids do. Kids are people pleasers by nature and they read your body language. So when they think that they're saying something that you don't want to hear, that you don't like, they change what they're saying to make you happy. This is very common. It's why you have to be very, very careful when interviewing children and only use open-ended questions. In 1983, Henry confessed to killing an unidentified woman who was later identified as Michelle Boucher. While he was being interrogated, Henry gave inconsistent information about the way he killed her and where he killed her. Later, the police eliminated him as a suspect. Henry also claimed to have shot and murdered an unidentified girl in Caledonia, New York in 1979. The girl was referred to as Caledonia Jane Doe. The police found the evidence to be insufficient to support his claims. Following these false confessions, a journalist by the name of Hugh Ainsworth started investigating other confessions made by Henry. He found out that Henry Lee Lucas would have had to use his 13-year-old Ford station wagon to cover 11,000 miles or 17,700 kilometers in one month to have committed all the crimes the police attributed to him during that month. Because remember, these murders were supposedly all throughout the entirety of the United States. Now this obviously doesn't make any sense. It just seems like the task force and the police were happy they were closing cases and that's all they cared about. Attorney General Jim Maddox said, When Henry was confessing to hundreds of murders, those with custody of him did nothing to bring this this hoax to an end. We found information that would lead us to believe some officials cleared cases just to get them off the books. Three of these announced murders were in McLennan County. An investigation by the Dallas Times Herald published in 1985 cast doubt on the validity of Lucas's confession spree, but the Rangers stood by the confessions as legitimate and their claims that Lucas was a mass murderer. This prompted DA Vic Fiesel to begin investigating the claims and eventually published the Lucas report. The report suggested that Lucas could not have committed some of the murders to which he had confessed, including the ones in McLennan County. The Texas Rangers were unhappy with his defiance and then the fact that he was casting doubt on them. The Texas Department of Public Safety began an investigation of Fizal, which several sources have tied to retaliation. Fiesel was arrested and his office and home searched by agents. Fiesel's arrest came seven weeks before Election Day. Voters in McLennan County reelected him for another term anyway. During the criminal investigation leading up to Fiesel's indictment, a reporter from the Dallas television station WFAA named Charles Duncan ran an 11-part series about him which later led to a liable judgment in favor of fiesel worth 58 million dollars Wow! this series was the only evidence that was shown to a federal grand jury that indicted Faisal. so for some of you who do not know um a story in the news could not be considered evidence because Investigative journalism is about piecing things together to create what you believe happened, but that doesn't mean it is necessarily what happened. You're presenting your theory based on what you found. So basically taking a series where someone put together why they thought something was wrong with this person, that is not (laughs) evidence. It never should have been admitted to court. It's pretty much hearsay. Um, He was found guilty on June 29th, 1987 and I'm sorry, he was found not guilty, I apologize. He was absolutely acquitted of all charges on June 29th, 1987. He then returned to work as the district attorney. However, on September 13th, 1988, he sent out a press release and stated that he was resigning as district attorney. In 1991, represented by former U.S. Attorney Garrett Richardson, Faisal sued for libel against WFAA, and like I stated, he won $58 million, and at the time, it was the largest libel judgment in U.S. history. As a result, he was cited in the 1993 edition of the Guinness World Records for the largest defamation lawsuit ever. Faisal then began representing Lucas in all of the still-pending murder cases he had confessed to around the country. Fiesel spent much of the nineties representing Lucas to ensure he was not convicted based on any more false confessions. The work done by Fiesel and others cast enough doubt into the validity of Lucas's confession into the orange socks murder case that 1998, for those of you, let me go over that. The orange socks murder case. It was a case where um, they had found a woman on the side of the highway and all she was wearing was orange socks. And it had been unsolved. They had no leads. And then Lucas came. And not only did he confess, but the thing that had been held back, I believe, was the orange socks. So when he knew the color of the socks um, and confessed, that's what made them believe that it was him. And that landed him on death row. So to that point, he had confessed to several murders. they were talking about. He was doing jail time. He knew he was going to be in jail the rest of his life. But he was not aware that that was a murder case. And when he met with Faisal, so Faisal sat down to meet with him to to see if they had any cases. He insisted he be allowed to interview him alone. And once the Texas Rangers were gone from the room and it was just Faisal and him, he straight up said, yeah, nah, I didn't do this. And so he then went into VICAP. VICAP is like a database we have of crimes, tickets, citations, things like that. And he found multiple listings of tickets, of different things for Lucas that absolutely contradicted what he was saying. Like he had alibis in the form of other crimes and and petty things that he had done in other towns to prove that he couldn't have done many of these things. While Faisal was in Vicap, he got kicked out and his access restricted. So basically the Rangers knew they knew that he had found reasonable doubt to these confessions and they were blocking his access to corroborate what he had found. So once when Faisal talked to Lucas, he explained to him he was going to die. They were going to execute him. And it was clear that Lucas did not know that he was not aware that he was going to the electric chair once he you know, all of this ended. He had no clue. And Faisal was the one who let him know and helped him understand the reality of what he was really doing. And it worked enough that when it came time for him to be put to death, George W. Bush, the 1998 governor of Texas, commuted his sentence to life imprisonment. So for someone like George W. Bush, for those of you who are not Americans, Uh, George W., he's junior, W as we like to call him, um, was not the sharpest tool in the shed, so for him to actually recognize how dubious this whole situation was and to at least commute his sentence to death, that's a huge deal. Um now lucas was found dead in prison from heart failure at the age of 64 in on march 12 2001 as of 2020 dna evidence has verified that lucas did not kill 20 of his supposed victims the remaining are still being verified and there's a strong possibility he didn't commit most of those now another thing that is should be noted is one thing that they found like they like i said they found like parking tickets they found small minor violations that could prove that he had an alibi one of the days that um he uh supposedly committed that he confessed to one of the murders he had gone to a city hall and applied for a marriage license Like <laughs> they had that marriage license on file so the fact that like how do you oh yeah oh uh, i forgot I I was trying to get married that day my bad like how do you forget that Lucas just wanted to please the law enforcement he stated he thought he was helping out people he considered to be his friends and that was the issue like I said as soon as they separated him from the Texas Rangers like he stopped confessing to stuff he was people-pleasing he was doing what he thought would make the Rangers he felt were his friends happy so Not, like I said, only out of all of the the 213 that he confessed to, only 20 um, were actually verified that he didn't do it. So in the United States, you have to either find new evidence, such as DNA evidence, you have to find a witness that wasn't presented before. For them to overturn it, it has to be, you know, your lawyer has to have committed, um, you know, where he couldn't do his job duties to the best of his ability. So he could say that he had ineffective legal counsel. And not just the fact that the legal counsel didn't do their best by him, but that they made critical errors that resulted in him being convicted. Um, Things like um, if they were able to show that the prosecutors withheld evidence, those are the types of things that tend to get you a new trial. None of those things were really, just you erroneously confessing because you thought you were making people happy. That's not grounds, because people would recant their confessions every single day if we just let that go. So the burden is on you now to prove that you didn't do this. And when you've confessed to over 200 murders, it's difficult. And also, I can see the reluctance. This is a person who did have a history of committing violent crimes, but still the way that our US justice system is set up and, and put together is when you've falsely been convicted, whether it's because you confessed out of fear or whether you, know, you have bad or faulty evidence, Relief is not immediate, unlike what you see on TV. It's not this great thing you go to court and suddenly have a new lawyer and they believe you're innocent and jump in there and bam, no. This is a process that takes decades in the United States. Decades. I mean, there are people, 20 plus years, there are people who are only getting out after being falsely convicted after 40 years in jail. So it takes decades to go through this process. It's not something that happens right away. Um, and that's if they even allow you to have a second trial, they may shut down your appeal and you may not be granted a new trial to prove your innocence because in the United States, they don't just quash it, throw it out. They actually grant a new trial so you can prove that you are innocent, not just, oh, this is jacked up. Clearly this couldn't have happened. Like there is a case in Boston where there were two mistrials because they could not agree that this person had done anything wrong. And then the third time they were convicted and that was thrown out by a judge and they were granted a new trial because the judge said unequivocally, you did not get a fair trial. But they still were in jail because they were still waiting a fourth trial. And finally, we were about, they were about to get a new district attorney in Boston one who was a person of color so they feared that this person would be uh, sympathetic to the situation and they decided not to pursue charges but in their press conference they stated that they were convinced this person was guilty so i mean that's very much the way the united states works a lot of times they will choose not to retry someone when they're given a new trial Or they may retry them and they get acquitted, you know, or they get a hung jury and they may end up having five, six trials for the same crime. It's ridiculous, but it's how our system works. So it's not, okay, you didn't get a fair trial. We're letting you go. It's you didn't get a fair trial. You need to stay in jail while we do a new new one. We do a do-over. And then the outcome is dependent on what happens then. So it is a very long, slow going process in the United States. Many times it does not work out in the favor who have been falsely convicted, but it is something that is contentious and that many of us are trying and fighting to get prison reform and judicial reform because the system makes it so easy for people to be falsely convicted and then provides very dubious relief, meaning it's a very difficult, slow going process so that's the story of uh frank of mr lucas of uh henry lee lucas i almost called him frank lucas the drug dealer of henry lee lucas um and the drastically different ways in which we in the united states deal with uh people who are falsely convicted versus the way that sweden dealt with and these were very Similar bizarre cases, people um, admitting to being serial killers when they are not, but that's a drastic contrast um, in how the uh, false confessions and the false convictions were handled. Um, join me next time when we take a look at a case of a woman who was convicted under the murder statute that resulted in her getting life in prison for a crime that happened while she was handcuffed in the back of a police car and it also uh, led to international outrage as the author hunter s thompson took up her cause Uh, this is one that i remember it happened in my home state um i remember all this it was a huge thing to have the celebrity fighting for her And these very, very harsh sentences that happen in Colorado are a huge, huge deal and a big point of discussion. So uh, join me next week when we look into the case of a woman who was convicted for a crime that happened while she was already arrested. And in the meantime, as always, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things.